we've got this collision about to happen. Well, wait a minute. Who is the king? You just said Herod's the king, and he sure thinks he is. But now someone else comes, having watched the heavens, and they know that there's a different king has been born. Even the heavens announce it. For we have seen his star. What an incredible little statement. His, the star belongs to him. All the stars belong to him. We have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, ding, there's that reference again, important to Matthew, apparently. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and he quotes Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler Another synonym for king. Third time now we're hearing about the authority of this child that's been born. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Lord, we commit these next minutes to you now and ask that the spirit that inspired this text, the spirit that was behind these events, would now be here with us, opening the eyes of our hearts to behold your glory and your goodness in Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. We have seen his star. That's what the Magi tell the people of Jerusalem, notably Herod. Herod's probably thinking, how come I didn't get a star? Is this king higher up the ranks than I am? Well, Herod, yes, by a considerable piece. We have seen his star. And that star is an announcement of hope, of what kind of king this is that's been born. The hope, first off the top, of a shepherd king. When they quote Micah, Micah says that he will shepherd my people Israel. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The reason that Herod is so prominent in this scene seems to be this. Right throughout his entire book, the book of Matthew, Matthew keeps holding Herod in front of us, partly to show, I would argue, that there's a contrast now between two kings and between the kingdoms that they represent. This comes out very vividly in chapter 2 that we've just read from, really points forward to the middle of the book in chapter 14, I'll come to in a second, and of course to the end, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 14, which is precisely halfway through the book, Matthew has 28 chapters, so 14 is right in the middle. In chapter 14, we read about the two kings having their two feasts. It's Herod's birthday, and he puts on a big party for himself, and he, he invites to his party the wealthy and the, power, the powerful, and of course it becomes a feast of death when his wife's daughter dances, and everybody's clapping and thinking how great this is. He says, I'll give you whatever you want. She says, give me John the Baptist's head, and this tragically is what happens. It becomes a feast of death. That's the kind of king 
Herod is. If you go to chapter 14, we won't study that in detail this morning, but if you go there, you will see the way Matthew plays this out. It's King Jesus and King Herod, two different kings, and they have two very, very different feasts. A feast of death we've just seen, but then on the back of that, it's in about three verses later, Jesus goes off into a desolate place, possibly to grieve. It's right when he hears about John being martyred. It just says he went off into a desolate place. Maybe this is a season of grieving for him. Birth, as in the birth of Christ, shows humanness. He had human emotions. Of course, maybe he just wanted time to grieve and to process all this. He goes off into a desolate place, but Matthew says, however, the crowds saw where he went. He went by boat. And they ran around the edge of the the, the Sea of Galilee, and they actually got there ahead of him and his disciples. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived, there's this huge crowd numbering 5,000 men plus however many women and children. This is thousands, thousands of people. And they're physically needy, spiritually needy, needy in every way. What happens? First off the top, Matthew says Jesus was going around healing their sick. He is feeling drained and grief-stricken. And what's he do? He pours out even more. He goes out, he goes around among the crowd, healing their sick. Then the day draws to a close. It's getting, starting to get dark. The disciples say, Who are we, how are we going to feed these people? Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, we hardly have any resources. He says, bring me what you've got. There's a great picture of mission. We just bring Jesus what we've got. And then he's the one that multiplies it. He takes a handful of loaves and fish and turns it miraculously into enough food for 5,000 plus people such that there are two big baskets of leftovers at the end. Physical healing. He teaches them the word. There's spiritual nourishment and then physical food to feed the hungry. Matthew concludes that scene saying they were all, that they, they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. They received the word. They received healing. They received physical nourishment. Do you see what this is? It's King Jesus acting out the kingdom of God, his kingdom, on King Herod's turf. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and that's where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. So it's right under Herod's nose, the real king comes and says, I'll show you a feast. I'll show you what kingship is all about. Kingship is leadership that serves its people and blesses them. Two kings, two feasts. They could not possibly be more different And of course, when it's King Jesus, he comes to us where we are, in our place of need. This is the desolate place. Twice in the passage in chapter 14, Matthew says it took place in a desolate place. That can actually be translated in a desert place. It's the actual word for desert. Where there were no resources, he fed 5,000 plus people. You, this morning, may be in a bit of a desolate place, financially, emotionally, relationally, howeverly. Well, we have a king, says Matthew, who can look after his sheep anywhere. That's part of the message of this scene. And that's part of what Matthew is introducing by from the very get-go of the story. In chapter 2, there's going to be these two kings 
And we can be free from the, the, uh, the control of the one when we put our trust and faith in the other. We don't have to serve our Herods. And King Jesus, the real king, will look after us right under Herod's nose. Wonderful scene. We have seen his star, the hope of a shepherd king. We have seen his star, the hope of a savior king. Have we got this? Oh, beautiful. Great. We have seen his star, the hope of a savior king. Several times already we've referred to Jesus as the king, rightly so. In Matthew's text, if you go back into chapter 1, which you didn't actually read from, Jesus is referred to by another title before he's called king, and that is Savior. When the angel comes to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, to tell him what he needs to do, because Matthew, or correction, Joseph has just found out his bride-to-be is pregnant. He comes to the natural conclusion that anyone would in that situation without revelation. And he is resolved to break off the engagement. The angel comes to him and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Take her and take her home, marry her. And, and that is what he does. And the angel says to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh saves. It's actually Joshua. That was his, his name if you said it in the Hebrew way. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Before he's referred to as a king, he's referred to as a savior, because he is a savior king. The interesting thing to note about this, the mention of salvation from sin, he will save his people from their sins, is the way Matthew brings that theme, that wonderful hope, back in at the very end of his story. Of course, we know it's where Christ dies and rises again, which is precisely how he saves us. But the specific mention of salvation from sin there's a tie-in at the beginning of Matthew and again at the end. We've just read what the angel says to Joseph. He will save his people from their sins. Then right coming up to the end of the story in chapter 26, Matthew 26, verse 28, 26, 28, this is at the Last Supper. And of the three Gospels, only the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give the Lord's Supper scene. But of those, only Matthew mentions the words about the forgiveness of sins. Here, I'll read it from Matthew. For this is my blood. He's pouring the, 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 uh, the wine into the goblet. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And that's where Luke and Mark end it, which is poured out for many. But Matthew includes several extra words. Matthew 26, 28, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. And that ties the Last Supper scene right back to what the angel tells Matthew. The whole story is in between a pair of bookends that this is a Savior King. And He has come to save us from our sins. He's a King. But He's not like other kings. He's sure not like Herod. 
The only other, the only crown Herod, pardon me, the only crown Jesus ever wore in his earthly mission was made of thorns. And there's a profound, profound Old Testament back drop to that scene. The, the, the soldiers, as, as part of their mocking and their torment of Jesus, they take thorns, make them into a circle, and jam them into his scalp. If you've seen the Mel Gibson film, which is so gruesome, the scene when they do that, you, the whole audience winces when they jam the, the, the crown of thorns into Christ's scalp. Why thorns? Well, there's a very profound biblical reason behind that. Of course, Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. Genesis 3, 18, the first visible sign of God's judgment on the earth that when Adam endeavors to make things grow, because God had told him, till the earth and keep it, that was Adam's mandate. But now because Adam has turned his back on God, God pronounces a curse on the soil. And that curse in the soil, Genesis 3.18, takes the form of thorns. And then many, many, many centuries and generations later, the Savior of the world comes and those thorns land on him. The beauty of this for us is that the consequences of sin are off us when we trust in Christ and cry out to him for salvation. The consequences of sin, the consequences of our sin are off us and on him. He bears the judgment. He takes it on himself. It's entirely appropriate that he wear, that he wear a crown, but it's entirely appropriate that it was a crown of thorns because by the very bizarreness of that, just a crown of thorns, what's that all about? It's a prophetic sign. I'm, I'm sure the, in the economy of God, it was a prophetic sign, sign that the soldiers didn't design to be prophetic that, that day. But in the hands of God, who was orchestrating all these events, God is saying, here is my son, and he's a king, so he deserves a crown, but we'll show that he's a very different kind of king. His crown speaks of him bearing the sins of the world in himself. You can trust him with your sin and come back to God through him because he saves us from our sin. We have seen his star, the hope of a savior king. We have seen his star, the hope, this is kind of my favorite one. We have seen his star, the hope of a warrior king, the hope of a warrior king. Again, taking scripture back to its early chapters in the opening chapters of Genesis, when Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, God shows up. You know that story. They run and hide. They're so ashamed. God calls them. You come and talk to me. And there's the dialogue between God and Adam, God and Eve, and God and the serpent. And when it comes to, I shouldn't call it dialogue. It was more just God speaking. But when he comes to the serpent, here is what he says. Genesis 3.15, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And then this, I love this line. This is a, a good underlying verse in the Bible. He, 
the one, the seed, the Savior who will descend from Adam and Eve. He will crush your head. I want to clap when I hear that. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. This salvation that Christ will win. He's the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. It's the earliest prophetic messianic prophecy in Scripture, in the third chapter of the Bible. A descendant of Adam and Eve. And this is why the humanity in our Christian doctrine, of our theology, of how we, what we believe about Christ, it's crucially important we hold on both to his deity and to his humanity. He's 100% God. He's 100% human at the same time. Don't try and figure it out. You will fry your brain. It can't be done. It's a mystery. He 100% deity, 100% humanity. And that scene where God speaks to the serpent, it's highlighting Christ's humanity. It's as a man who will have to be born that Jesus will be the savior of mankind. It was a member of the, it was members of the human race that brought sin into the world by listening to the serpent and disobeying God. And now, the one that will crush the serpent's head, there's almost a delicious irony in this, the, one that, the ones that Satan tricked, now one of their descendants will crush his head. You want to cheer. This is good news. He's the warrior king. At the outset of his ministry, in all four Gospels, but mostly, especially Mark, there is exorcisms all over the place. Jesus is frequently driving out demons. In Mark chapter 3, they just somebody that has demons in them sees Jesus and they scream, they shriek. And in chapter 3, they fall down in front of him and say, you are the son of God, you are the son of God. And this is the demons saying that. They can't not say it because of the, the power and the authority that they know is in Jesus. And then he, with a few words, will just say, you're out of here. And they shriek and they leave. It's warfare from the very beginning of his earthly mission, he, because he's the warrior king. But driving out demons is simply a lead up to what happens when Christ goes to the cross. As God tells the serpent in Eden, you will strike his heel. And I'm sure if when you get crucified, it's fair to say your heel gets bruised because the spike goes right through your feet, right through the ankles. You will strike his heel, however. So it's a, it's a costly victory that Jesus wins. It costs him something, the, the physical torture and torment of crucifixion. It's a costly victory, but it's a total victory. And notice where the two opponents in this battle are injured one of them, the king, Jesus, is injured in his feet, in his heel. However, his opponent that he has come to defeat is injured in his head. And in the, the Hebraic way of looking at people and authority and so forth, the head always represents the authority and the power. The head of Jesus is God, it says in 1 Corinthians. And that Christ is the head of the church and now, where does Satan get hit? He gets hit in his head as a negation of his authority and power. We get it very clearly in Hebrews chapter 2. Just listen to this. It's brilliant. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, hence 
the picture of the newborn baby. He is flesh and blood. Why? Because we are, and we're the ones he came to save. Since the children therefore share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, namely flesh and blood. Now get this. So that through death, through his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. By dying on the cross, please don't ask me this morning to explain this. There's, there's, a, there's profound depths here. How his sacrifice on the cross, his gruesome, painful death, he's even abandoned by God. We'll get to that in a moment. In that, he destroys Satan. He breaks Satan's hold on people. That's why the devil, if you're saved this morning, if you've already come to Christ and received eternal life, did you ever reflect on the fact the devil was unable to stop you getting saved? He couldn't. Why? Because Christ broke his power. That's the sense in which Hebrews means he destroyed him. He destroyed his power to control and keep people under his grip. He's the warrior king. He's the warrior king. And he crushes the devil by going to the cross for us. Now we need to move on, but one more juicy bit where Paul picks up on this theme. It's in Romans chapter 16. It says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan. This is Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under, what's the next word? Your, under your feet. He tells the Roman church that. The Roman church was not without its problems. Especially if you read the last four or five chapters, there was all sorts of ethnic strife between Jews and Gentiles and moral issues. It, it, it was not a perfect church any more than we are here. And Paul tells them, imperfect people, still in process of becoming like Christ, he tells them, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why can the likes of us crush Satan because Christ has already crushed him. His crushing gives us authority to do our crushing. We have seen his star, the hope of a warrior king. We have seen his star. We have seen his star. I almost called this the hope of a teacher king. That would have been good. Where we have it here is learning from Christ how to hope. Learning from Christ how to hope. Hope is a, one of those many English words that can either be a noun or a verb. We can say, I have hope. You're using the word hope as a noun there. Or we can say, I hope my friend gets saved. I'm, I'm hoping in Christ for my own, for answers to prayer and so forth. That's using hope as a verb. We have seen his star, learning, to, learning from Christ, the, teachers, the teacher king, how to hope. We're bringing it in now at the end of Matthew in the crucifixion scene. Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, 46. It's where Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. 
and he quotes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, of course, you know the words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. There are different ways that scholars have understood this moment. With this, we're going to close. This is our final point. Scholars have debated what's going on when Christ cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Now, it certainly is real abandonment because in between Jesus and the Father is a cloud of yours and my sin. So he does feel cut off, and he genuinely is cut off. He was not imagining this sense of abandonment. That's how the psalm begins. And many, some people interpret it as saying that's all it was. It was just his experience of abandonment. Now, I want to suggest that's a partial view of this moment in 2746. Why have you forsaken me? Here's what I think is a sounder view, a sounder interpretation of that moment, and it fits the whole sweep of Jesus' earthly ministry, shepherd king, savior king, warrior king, and now he's like the teacher king. He's showing us, he's teaching us how to hope. Here's what I'm suggesting. When he quotes, when he recites those words, which everyone in the crowd there would have known, or at least the Jewish people there would have known, yes, I've heard those recited, I've heard them sung in the temple or in our local synagogue. Why have you forsaken me? They all knew where it came from. It was Psalm 22, and they would all remember something else, that Psalm 22 does not end in abandonment. It ends in hope. Verse 27, Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the, excuse me, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Jesus of Nazareth, our King, did not, brothers and sisters, die in despair. He died in hope. And he's calling sufferers like himself to hope in God. When he quotes that verse, he is pointing the people that were there at that moment who understood that this was a scripture quotation. He was pointing them and he was pointing me and pointing all of us to the whole message of Psalm 22. It opens in abandonment, but it goes on to hope He's saying, hold on to God, hold on to God, hold on to God. Here's how the psalmist handles his own sense of abandonment, and it's to this that Jesus is pointing us, because he's the teacher king. He's come to give us hope. The psalmist does three things. First, he vents, V-E-N-T-S, he vents. You know, when you're mad and you need to get it off your chest, you just vent He vents, and he vents by saying, why have you forsaken me? That's what's going on in his heart, and he puts it into words, and that's a good thing. He vents. The second thing the psalmist does, and Jesus is pointing us here by quoting the opening line. He believes, the psalmist believes, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall come and worship before you. He puts his hope in God, and he has hope in God. He sees the big picture, the whole earth full of the glory of the Lord.
And then third, but it's first in the psalm, he holds on. He feels abandoned by God, and he asks God why he, God, has abandoned him, David the psalmist. He feels abandoned by God, but he holds on to God. He's, he feels abandoned by God. We can see that when he says, why have you forsaken me? But he holds on to him. Please get this. Please get this. Twice he calls God my God. I doubt there's two more important words in the Bible. The needy people represented by Jesus calling God my God. Our heart this morning is every single person here is able in integrity and in sincerity to call God, the God of the Bible, my God. My God. Follow Jesus. He's the teacher king. He shows us how to handle suffering by holding on to God, and he holds on to God by calling him my God. And he says it twice. If we can have the next slide. I don't know anything about the man climbing that cliff except one thing I know for absolute certain. It isn't me. I don't think I could cope with that. His rope, his line, extends off the picture, upwards. And at the top end, if we could see where it was anchored, you'd see something like what we see in the image on the right. The anchor that is bolted into the rock face, the cliff face, is called a piton. It's like an anchor. And that little rectangular gadget that hooks his rope to the piton is called a carabiner. And it has a spring kind of a mechanism where you can open it and you can click your carabiner onto the piton, onto the hook, onto other ropes, anything. They're very useful and flexible and versatile in mountain climbing. The reason the climber can make his way up the cliff and not fall to his death is because he's anchored to something. He's anchored to the rock. The last slide, please. That's what it looks like up close. Did you all get one of these? Have we handed these? Okay, let's just, just take a moment. We're going to distribute. You get a free souvenir this morning. Please take one. And if you're game to do it, I'm going to ask you to write something on this. Just be a moment, we'll all have one. It's simply a picture of the carabiner anchored to the rock by being hooked on that piton. We've almost got it. We want everybody to have one. The series we're doing in our lead up to Christmas is highlighting certain themes that traditionally are associated with the coming of Christ. Last Sunday, 
Aaron took us through a very, very solid and meaty study on joy. This morning's topic, which I hope we came across, this morning's topic is hope. But not just some sort of generic hope like you see in greeting cards at a Hallmark shop. It's hope that is in Christ. He is our hope. And part of the way he ministers hope is he gives us an example of hope. When he is abandoned by God, he holds on to God. And he holds on to God by calling him twice in the same verse, my God. When we call God, my God, we are hooking our carabiner to the rock face. And that's our security so that we won't fall. If it helps you, you could take one of these and if it helps you, write on there, my God, my God. Those four words, my God, my God. Take this home if you have magnets, put it on the front of your refrigerator, use it as a bookmark in your Bible. And when you see the words, my God, my God, you know, you'll know that's how we hold on. That's how we hold on. The psalmist to whom Jesus points us in his dying moments vents to God. He pours out exactly what's going on in his heart and mind. Why have you forsaken me? The psalmist has hope about all the earth being full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. All the nations coming. He's got hope, and he affirms that. But perhaps the most important verses, words in the whole psalm are the opening words, my God, my God. Even in his moment of abandonment, he holds on to God by calling God that wonderful title. Write it on there. Keep it where you can see it this morning. As we lean into Christmas, let's have hope. And hope really derives from trusting God the way Christ did on the cross, calling him my God. This morning we're remembering the Magi. They said, we have seen his star. The star of the shepherd king who cares for us wherever we are, wherever we are emotionally or in any other area, wherever we are. The desert place does not stop him from caring for his sheep. He's the savior king. He takes our sin to the cross and he deals with it. Game over, it's done. That's why he says, it is finished. My saving work is finished. And he's the warrior king. He drives out demons with the word and he crushes Satan in his sacrificial death on the cross. And along with that, those points, he's the teacher king. He shows us how to hope. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. He's our shepherd king. He's our Savior King. Lord, I thank you that my guilt is no longer on me because Jesus died to take it away. He's our warrior King. Whatever battles we may be fighting, we can call on him, the warrior King, and we can represent him in the battle and speak to our situations and say, in Jesus' name, because we're speaking in the name of the warrior King. He's our teacher King. Father, I pray we would learn from your Son and hold on to you as my God. Each of us to say, my God. We would know him, know you in that way. We praise you this morning through Jesus. Amen.